and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. I'm David Reed, bringing you interviews and insights from the data and analytics industry. In this edition, we have two extended interviews for you. Coming up, I speak to Paul Ravenscroft. Many of you will know him from his role as Head of Personalization and Insight at Walgreen Boots Alliance. Having just left, he shared his thoughts on how much data and analytics has changed over the 12 years he was there, and also what he has learned about leading teams. But first, Dr. Sashiko Shoyang is European Privacy Officer at Axiom. She's also the co-chair at FEDMA, which represents data and interactive marketing associations in Brussels. Plus, in 2020, DataIQ selected her to receive the Professor Derek Holder Lifetime Achievement Award. I caught up with her to find out about her career, what makes an analyst swap to the world of data protection, and what it is really like inside those corridors of power. Sashiko, so first of all, um, can you talk us through your career? Where did you start and what is it that you do now? After my studies, I started off as a database analyst at an international hotel chain. And then after that, I um, did my PhD. And right after my PhD, I started working with my current employer, which is Axiom. There I started in their Dutch office as the um, chief analyst. And a couple of years later, the chief privacy officer of Axiom came and visited our offices. And at that time, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I don't know what that is, but let's go for it. She thought that was great. So I joined the global privacy team. And ever since 2005, I have been the uh, European privacy officer of uh, Axiom in charge of internal compliance, public affairs, and so on. And that is also around the same time that I started serving as the data protection officer. In the Netherlands, you were able to appoint a data protection officer. And so in that capacity, I was working. That also gave me the opportunity to engage with other privacy professionals because, you know, back in that time, there weren't many uh, data protection experts. So I uh, joined the Dutch Data Protection Officers Association, and by the time I realized, I was on their board. And I thought, well, the Netherlands is so small, and it seems like Europe is trying to come up with a new data protection framework. So... Um, I contacted a different data protection officers association in different European countries. And um, together, we started this organization called CETPO, uh, which is an umbrella organization for data protection organizations around um, Europe. And through that body, we have also been contributing a lot in the consultation phase of the GDPR. So that's the data protection side. Uh, on the uh, on the other path I was on, I was um, also um, starting my involvement with FEDMA the moment I became the European Privacy Officer. And in 2014, for the first time, I have been appointed as the co-chair of FEDMA. And currently, I'm serving my third term. You do seem to like your umbrella organizations. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> You've been involved with two. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute. If, if you don't mind. Uh, so for people who don't know, um, can you tell us a little bit about Axiom and what it is in its proposition that requires a chief privacy officer? What my company does, we are a marketing co- services company and we use data and technology to identify, understand and engage customers. And that wherever they are, 
And what we do is that we use next generation approaches for it. So that's why my job at Axiom is to ensure that we are doing so responsibly. What I also noticed is that uh, when I started off with my data protection, data protection career, there were, of course, uh, client requirements and so on. But the interesting thing is today with every single client engagement, there is a data protection requirement. So there is a dialogue usually an intensive dialogue about data protection and compliance. It is unusual for an analyst, I think, to cross over uh, into the privacy profession. Perhaps as you just outlined in the context of of Axiom, there is an overlap. Uh, Presumably you see a benefit of both sides understanding each other. Yes, I think so. Um, I don't know how the UK educational system is, but... I think there's this general trend um, throughout the world that you have these liberal art school of thought and this scientific school of thought. In other words, you know, people who are good at English history and so on are tend not to be good at math. The other way, vice versa, physical, uh, physics, uh, math, and so on. Those people tend not to be good at like history and English and so on. Um, I like both. It is actually not about the. Um, the expert knowledge of how to analyze or the expert knowledge of different data protection laws and the application of them. It is about communicating those laws, interpreting that into practice and telling it in a way so that the other person understand. So you can say as an analyst, all sorts of things or an engineer, you know, what you are doing in your data protection impact assessment and so on. But the lawyers and the data protection experts there is no guarantee that they really understood what you mean. So I often find myself being in between, listening to the stories of both sides and trying to understand, uh, to to find out a way to communicate so that both parties understand. There are two types of data use. Use number one is actually the uh, analytical phase. So what I mean by that is you want to have as much data as possible so that you can think with it and you can come up with a formula or uh, or decision-making function. And then there's the second way of using data, and that is the application of it. So once you have developed that um, decision tree or this algorithm or whatever, then all you need, instead of that, uh, instead of like, this huge database, you only need one or two variables, one or two attributes. And the other side is now um, the GDPR is also acknowledging the necessity of being innovative and creative with data. If you actually have data that was collected for another purposes, you may use that for a different purpose, provided that you uh, you have a certain uh, technical and organizational measure put in place and other requirements. And the idea of that was actually uh, uh, to enable data creation and innovation within a privacy-friendly framework. They have also come up with something very, um, um, very concrete and practical, and that is the use of pseudonymization. The idea there is, look, if you actually have plain data from which you can easily identify somebody, make sure that you make it a little bit more difficult so that people who don't necessarily have to know the identity of the person, like in that's most of the cases when you are just doing some analytics, trying to find out trends, trying to find out, you know, what would be a, a good algorithm, then use pseudonyms instead of clear text. 
you mentioned about being co-chair of FEDMA, uh, and that does a lot of important lobbying work on, on behalf of the interactive and direct marketing industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the mission that FEDMA has uh, and what it carries out on behalf of uh, the associations it represents? FEDMA actually stands for the uh, uh, DMAs throughout Europe. And like you said before, yes, it is another umbrella organization. <laughs> it, used to, it used to cover a wide variety of topics in this advocacy work. But since I became the co-chair, the emphasis has very much shifted on data protection. So that has become really a characteristic portfolio of FEDMA. We want people to think FEDMA data protection, responsible data use. Lobbying is often viewed as being this combative activity between industry lobbyists. Combative. <laughs> between industry lobbyists and legislators. But, but what, is, what is it really like? So you're in those corridors of power in, in Brussels. What is it like when you are going in to have these conversations about responsible marketing with those legislators? I don't see it as a combating relationship. Actually, I think this is a very important um, mechanism in our democracy. Why? Because those people who are in the corridor of power, they are actually making decisions to improve our lives. And they are doing so within best of their abilities, but Nobody can be a data protection expert, a, a clinical research expert, and at the same time, uh, an expert on a transport system or whatever. So you do need to have some sort of, a, some sort of an input. And what the most frequent uh, questions that I get from the, um, uh, from the policymakers is, so give us an example. They can imagine things in theory. They can imagine things in terms of, you know, how it can go, but they don't quite understand what exactly that would mean for companies that are actually, um, you know, processing data as, as a service for another company. So, for instance, people that are providing analytic services. What does that mean? Lobbying is, um, is an interaction. Lobbying, like everything else, is a conversation. And of course, I get to represent the interest of the industry. And from my European Privacy Officer responsibility, I also see what is happening on the ground. So I'm able to provide examples. But on the other hand, the more I work with them, the more I understand that they, of course, also have other uh, points of views, other um, interests that they need to balance against what, um, what I see as a problem or what I see as um, a, a vital importance to, to the industry. So to actually, um, I do have respect for these policymakers to have to get all the input possible and make a choice to improve our the way our society works. So combative? I don't think so. GDPR is now two years old. And I wonder what mood you feel there is amongst legislatures about whether they, they felt it got the job done, it had the impact they were expecting, and also what happened to other initiatives like, like e-privacy. From my point of view, I think they can really be proud of themselves. Why? Because GDPR has spread the awareness of data protection through commerce, if you want so. Because if you want to do business with Europe, you have to understand the GDPR. 
And that has really become a great incentive for many countries around the world to come up with new data protection laws or to improve their existing law into something that is more similar to the GDPR. So I really do commend the initiative that um, the Europeans have made on this front. Um, in terms of the e-privacy um, regulation development, I think that's a very difficult issue. There are uh, uh, so at the moment it is at with the council, and they are still working on their draft so that the council, the commission, and the parliament come into the trialogue process, just as they did um, back in the GDPR time. But I think um, as time goes past by, there is a uh, growing, um, uh, growing concern that maybe the proposed draft is a very difficult draft to be able to uh, agree, agreed upon. And COVID-19, uh, funnily enough, may have highlighted the problem of this all. You see, Data has really been used to combat COVID-19. It can be data can be used for for good in global health crisis, and there are also other uses of like, of data like marketing that bring real value to people. So, data-driven marketing helps business reduce wasteful ad spending and helps fund free or low-cost products and services on the internet like search services, yep. um, free email, free yep. social media platform. So I think one comes to, re uh, one starts to realize that they need, perhaps the focus was too much on data protection, which is one of the fundamental rights under the European, um, uh, European Charter. And they start to understand there are other rights and freedom, like right to life, that you have to balance with the right of data protection. So I am expecting a, um, a multi-dimensional discussion to commence, even on the topic of um, e-privacy regulation. There is also another initiative that is um, currently going on um, in Europe. The European Commission published the strategy paper for the uh, single European data space, which facilitates the access and use of high quality data within the EU. So from the document, you can sense that the institution wants to establish the European Union as competitor, the competitive leader in the global data-driven economy. Yeah. And as you hear from all sorts of corners that COVID-19 has fast-forwarded the digitalization by five years. Finally, Sashiko, this year we're recognizing your work with the DataIQ Lifetime Achievement Award. Looking at your career to date, does it feel like a lifetime's work or are there still ambitions, things that you want to achieve? So first of all, thank you so much. I am so humbled and um, I feel that because of this award, I have to do more. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as of my ambition, you see, it goes beyond data. It goes beyond data protection. I actually want to have a robust, sustainable growth of mankind. But then, of course, I have to start somewhere. So I'm starting with the data industry, right? And I think, um, concretely speaking, what we really need to do is we really, really need to focus on innovation and creativity. What can make people innovate things easier? What can make people be more creative? So if you want to become 
part of this success, part of this robust, sustainable growth, I think businesses and organizations should think about how can it create an environment that promotes just that. So in this COVID-19 time, I'm actually thinking, I know it's difficult for you. I know it's difficult um, as an uh, employee as well, but Still, we have, to, uh, we have to think about providing a comfortable working environment, providing a pleasant working environment. You know, collegiality, I think that's very, very important. Being positive and everything. Only when one feels, uh, if I just talk about like a data scientist and so on, when one feels that I can rely on this, I trust my company, I trust my organization, then that stress is gone and you can really focus on being creative. The other thing that I am uh, very fond of is to promote exchange within the data community. For instance, in the field of data protection, I mix and mingle with academics, with policymakers, and other practitioners. And when I talk about practitioners, I'm also not only talking about practitioners from the marketing industry, but I'm talking about, you know, people that would also come from the health sector, healthcare sector, automotive, and so on. And the discussions that I can have with them really bring in so many different elements that I think, oh, I have learned again. And I hope that learning, me learning again and other participants learning again would be able to be used as an input for the next creativity. And you know what, David, from that point of view, I think um, Data IQ's effort to bring us all together it really, uh, it really resonates me. So, uh, so you can say, right, Data IQ and the initiatives is the fundament of the creative future and, um, and something that contributes a lot to um, robust, sustainable growth. So we need to make sure that our, our kids understand that data, you know, working with data is really, really exciting. So now, Paul Ravenscroft spent over a decade at Boots where he was part of a transformation of the Advantage card, among other things. He talked me through that journey and also looked ahead to his next step. So Paul, you've just left Boots after over a decade there. To start with, tell us about where it all began. What was it you were doing when you joined? Prior to joining Boots, I was a company just down the road from uh, here in, in Oakham called, uh, called Land's End, which was a lovely little company, America, American-owned, uh, and I was the database manager there. And um, I'm not sure whether that was the right title for, for, the, for the job. I'm not, not never sure I've had the right title in any, any job, um, but that's probably a discussion for another time. But what I did was uh, look after the analysis and the digital side of things and every, every analyst's favorite role forecasting and uh, also the targeting there and the reason I joined that company was because it allowed me to um, cut my managerial teeth that was the first time I was a, as a full-time uh, manager my wife works at Boots and um, she was telling me that they were talking about ramping up their personalization capability and uh, they'd hired uh, Ruth Spencer as the head of loyalty and uh, Martin Squires as the, as the head of customer insights uh, and they really wanted to make a significant uh, significant change which was a, a very exciting thing of course I've been there almost at the outset of the advantage card and it was time for a change it needed a change so it wasn't a greenfield development more of a brownfield development and uh, to borrow one of Martin's uh, Martin's phrases you know the setup that they had there was like a 1990s BMW 
it was good at the time, but it, it's no longer no longer top end. So that to me was a really exciting uh, challenge and something to get my um, teeth into, and, and needed a, a team pretty much building uh, from uh, from scratch. So that was the move that I uh, that I made into uh, into Boots at the time. Back at that point, it was pretty much all all direct direct mail and uh, offers offers based uh, and this kind of thing and, and at that point we were probably responsible for running about 70 campaigns a year uh, for the for the advantage card so it was it was good but it, it needed a change and I think it was recognized that uh, that investment was required um, to to uh, make those uh, make those changes and really start using the power of the data to talk to the customer so by the time you left this year, what was being personalised? A lot of things were being uh, personalised. So we'd moved from those 70 campaigns uh, into thousands of unique campaigns um, and, and millions of sort of iterations in terms of what any given customer might might see. The impact that we were having were, had, uh, had tripled uh, over that uh, over that time, um, and the, the metrics that we measured ourselves on. So it wasn't just the database metrics, but it was also the customer metrics uh, showed that we were consistently um, getting it right and, and using customers' data to uh, show that we uh, we knew them. Also, starting to move more and more into uh, digital digital media. Direct mail still works really well in the right circumstances, but of course it's all about uh, it's all about digital now. So expanding that capability and, and the, the leadership at WBA uh, is still very uh, very supportive and pushing that uh, capability. So those are really good examples of things that have changed uh, in the world of data analytics over the course uh, of your period at Boots, um, including data moving from being a back office function to now having board level attention. What for you have been the the key changes that you've seen during that time? Uh, Well, there's been many, many changes, um, but I'll I'll pick you up on on something there. So I think I was lucky. uh, We were lucky in the sense that Right from the right from the outset, there was board level support. So Alec Gourlay, who's now the you know uh, co president of um, of WBA, uh, Ken Murphy, now CEO of Tesco, and Elizabeth Fagan, who was the marketing director, who was the, who was the real champion of all of this, were all extremely supportive, and so it had that. Uh, attention right uh, right from the start. I know from various conversations with others that's not the position that they're in, but uh, we we were fortunate. What are those key changes? So the obvious one is is the technology and, and the cap- capability. So what you can do now in terms of scale and speed and and that you know, getting close to that IT capability has has, has changed hugely. Techniques. They're similar. You're, you're still trying to predict: is this customer likely to do X, Y, X, Y, Z? Those techniques have become more refined. But when you combine it with that scale and speed, uh, then it becomes a, a different operation as well. So that that technology and capability uh, is is one change I'd call out. Uh, another one is customer expectations and what uh, what the competition is is doing. So you know, back then, many of the biggest competitors weren't really uh, that prominent. But customer ex- customers expect if they give you their data, you're going to use it and join it together um, to improve their improve their experience and particularly their digital uh, experience. And I think another trend that's that's 
becoming stronger and stronger now is it's not just about outbound targeting here's this product we think you might like it is about making the whole shopping experience uh, easier and the service experience easier and, and using the same knowledge of the customer uh, that you would use to target to also t- to improve that uh, service I would describe data, uh, data analytics, use of use of uh, customer knowledge for personalization as a, as a total activity now. So when I went back to Boots and in previous roles, we've got this, uh, we've got this mailing or we've got this catalog coming out as it would have been at, at Land's, Land's End. Let's send it to the right people. Over time, that's moved much more to be about not just the right target, but in the right channel, with the right content, and, and and other things as well, all at scale and speed. And Elizabeth had a had a good a good saying with that I also also borrow. So the expression changes, but the principles remain remain consistent. And what what uh, what she meant by that is that good value and service and the personal touch is always important. But the way you go about doing that will always change. And I think we see that in those changes over that period. Connecting that digital experience to that uh, to that store experience, which is both a challenge but also uh, a huge opportunity. That if you, if you can get it right, I think people still like going into going into shops and feeling products and seeing seeing products. If you can bring those thing, two things together, then um, I personally think that's a that's a winning uh, winning route. But it is it is challenging. Well, it's often said that. Analytics is a team sport. You mm-hmm. are an award-winning leader of data analytics teams. So how did you develop your skills around people management and talent development? I don't think I ever went into it with, right, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm, I'm going, to, uh, going to do it. I think it, it grew organically through, uh, through experience. Um, and uh, as many people have done, I, I've done a sort of um, strengths analyzer and, and motivator analyzer. And one of the, the key motivators that comes out for me is service. Um, uh, service is a, is a key driver to me. One thing that um, struck a note with me is the, is the motto at Sandhurst which is serve to lead. Now, obviously, I'm not drawing, you know, I'm not saying that we're anything like that, but the principle of it, I think, um, is, is a good one, to, um, good one to, to think through. So as a leader, I, I see it as, as your role to understand and set that direction. But what I've always tried to do with, uh, with the team and the people who have worked, worked for me, um, worked with me, is to build that trust and empowerment because ultimately, as you, as you say, I mean, it's, the, it's the team. It's the team that gets the job done. My role as a leader, I've always seen as being there to support people to uh, achieve their aims, to achieve the achieve the purpose, to go on uh, and develop. Now, there may be some people sitting here uh, listening to this, saying, "Well, well, it's a bit lazy, isn't it?" And, and there is an element of that because <laughs> I don't want to be the person who is there every time there's a minute problem, right, I need to go and check that with Paul. I, you know, that's, that to me is <laughs> not a great way of working for anybody. Um, so there is that dimension to it. But actually, who is the best person to make the call? It's the person with, uh, with the detailed knowledge. Uh, it's the person who's been working on this. If they need to take a second opinion, I'm there. 
I'm there for that. And actually, you know, there's there's a lot of parallels with what uh, what we do in agile uh, methodology and you know, making the decision where the where the knowledge is is the important principle on, on that. And then the other side of your question around uh, talent uh, talent development. So I think all of us who work around data and analytics are um, are being held by certain circumstances. There are rare skills. There's heavy demand for those those skills. The requirements are always changing and always developing. You know, one reason I've I stayed with uh, Boost for for so long was because there was always a new always a new challenge. So they're the circumstances that you operate. Um, Operating, so you must invest in 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 talent um, management, and that parallels with the other side. You know, giving people empowerment, trusting them to do the job, backing them to make decisions, being there to support them. It's not just a case of saying, "Right, you're in this job, off you go now." Um, I hope you make the right decisions. It's also backing them with the right training and knowledge to um, put them in the best place to do to do that. And how how do you how do you go about doing that one? As I say, it's not something that I went in with fixed ideas. It's through a process of observing others, getting feedback, having those personal conversations. What's working for what's working for one might not work for the other, and and, and you know actually being analytical about it. One of, one of the most difficult things of that is is letting go, and I see it in other people. Um, they you know who go back to um, you know being in the coding or being in the being in the in those complex questions. It can be quite a cathartic thing to go back and write a presentation or do a bit of uh, bit of coding. But hey, you have to look at it in that sense um, now now that uh, you you are a leader. But in terms of more generally people going into positions of management the first thing I, I i'd say about that is do it for the right reasons so you know you you do see some people I'm, i must get management on my cv and i think i mentioned it earlier i went to land's end because i had management on my cv but management was always something i wanted to do to help people develop and, and lead lead people not because it was a tick box uh to get to a senior position obviously it's great to have line management experience uh in there but it's it's not for ev- not for everyone and there are other ways of doing it how you interact with your peers and um partners and stakeholders is also uh the similar sort of skills uh to uh, line management but without some of the more difficult challenges of uh, line management i'd also say learn from your own experience and be uh, be sensitive to to others you know don't go in there with a one size fits all what works for one person won't uh, won't necessarily work for uh, for another you know if you're hopefully trying to build a diverse diverse team uh, in terms of personalities um then then different uh, different methods uh, are going to um going to have a different effect particularly if you're inheriting a team you know take take your time uh with with that that team you know these these people have possibly been through a big upheaval if you can don't change change too much too quickly sometimes it's necessary uh to do that and you know try and take them take them with you and and get to understand them and um create the opportunity to get to uh get to get to know people at an early stage so one of the things that i used to do and hopefully we'll we'll do uh, again is you know so if someone new joined the team i'd i'd go i'd take them to a a data iq conference or something like that and and, and talk about what we were seeing and and get their get their thoughts on it and this kind of thing and it's all a way of building building rapport so think about it 
my advice would be to think about it from that point of point of view um, and think about why why you want to move into uh, line management because as I say it's not it's not for everyone so you're now looking for your next yeah. challenge uh, what's whetting your appetite? I think there is, and I hope there is a growing realization in the um, not just in the in the value of value of data and and data for data's sake, but the the purpose and the the principle around actively using it uh, for the good of the customer and the good of uh, the good of the good of the business. So obviously, I've been running targeting and some of the analytics around one of the largest and uh, most sophisticated customer programs, um, certainly in in Europe. Um, hopefully that makes, uh, is, is a rare, relatively unique, uh, unique experience. What I would like, like to do is hopefully with those organizations that now want to make make more of the data whether it's in a general sense but particularly around uh talking to their talking to their customers possibly starting out in the journey possibly realizing well we've been doing this but it really needs a need really needs an upgrade as it was at boots 12 12 years ago that would be a really exciting thing to to be involved in and what well, i think what organizations need to need to think about from a a customer data perspective is, you know, a loyalty card is is one thing, and it gives you fantastic information. But if you've got an app, if you've got an email program, if you've got a website, you know, you've got some components of customer customer data there, and no doubt there will be other data flowing around the business that may or may not be uh, getting uh, utilised properly. So the 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 thing that really I'd like to do is is find another another organization that's at the start of that journey or uh about to um about to really put some backing behind their their drive to make make more use of their use of their data because in the world of digital and some of those changes that i was talking about earlier you know it's something everyone needs to be doing customers expect it and if you're not making use of it then you're going to struggle against the likes of Likes of Amazon and, and those those organisations who quickly get their act in in order. Lots of places have potential to do more, uh, and uh, I'd like to be part of that journey. And I think I've got some relatively unique expertise that I can bring uh, bring to that journey as well. And that's it for another episode. If you liked it, please link, like, and share. And until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>